Hello and welcome back to Hell Saturn. Thank you for being here, as always, and bearing with my complete lack of a schedule. The regular schedule is a thing of the past, and at least for the time being and the foreseeable future, new episodes of the podcast will be coming out whenever I feel like it. I have had a huge creative block around recording, which I'm trying to move through and show myself grace and just tell myself that the podcast is whatever I make of it, whatever I want it to be. Nobody's commissioning these episodes, nobody's waiting for me, so I have a choice whether I want to keep showing up to the mic and recording or not, and I want to keep showing up. I want to keep putting out episodes, but I don't want to feel like this project is something I'm chained to or something that's weighing me down. I am a creative person with a lot of creative ideas and goals and visions for myself that exceed and surpass anything that I could make of this podcast, and I want to allow myself to keep channels open to work on those things. Maybe that's YouTube, maybe that's another mystery thing that I'm going to learn from my past mistakes and not announce on the podcast until I've realized at least a preliminary iteration of them, and then you'll hear about what I'm doing. But I'm not going to put the horse before the cart this time, I'm not going to announce things that I'm in the works of creating and still in the concept phase of. But I do want to allow myself to have the freedom to create freely and to use my time towards the creative projects and visions that light me up the most. If that's a podcast episode, amazing. You'll be hearing from me. And if my ideas want to find their way through another form, I'm going to welcome and embrace that and follow those impulses. So that's my quick update as to what you can expect or not expect from this podcast moving forward. And as always, I want to say a really heartfelt thank you for being one of my listeners, supporting the pod, supporting me through listening. It means a lot, and I appreciate you. For today's episode, I do want to pick up with the houses discussion and power through the rest of that series. Maybe we can even get through all six houses in this episode. Houses 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. And then we'll have set that foundation. You guys will have an idea of what the houses are as I understand them. And we can move forward into more creative conversations. Less me explaining basic astrology concepts. More me interpreting life and current events through an astrological lens. Which is what we want. That's really what we're here for. You could actually get this information about houses from a number of sources. There are a number of great books out there. I've recommended Llewellyn's Complete Book of Astrology, which I'll link again in the show notes. There are plenty of other excellent resources written and published on the subject. And, you know, it's 2024, so you could actually fire up ChatGPT and type in tell me about the seventh house in astrology and it will do a pretty good job of summarizing the exact points that I'm about to share with you. So if you are tired of waiting for me to walk you through the houses, please know that there are a number of other avenues that you could take to gain this knowledge and I actually recommend if you find what I'm talking about interesting that you do that and you look into the houses on your own and start to develop your own relationship and associations with these houses because the realms of life that they describe are a lot more vast, a lot more detailed and nuanced than what I'm going to be able to convey in my short summary of them. And, you know, they really are worlds unto themselves. So if that's something you're into, Luan's Complete Book of Astrology, ChatGPT, or even just a quick Google search can really set you on a course towards discovery and open up the ways in which you can understand and interpret your own chart. Okay, but before we dive in and talk about the 7th, 8th, and ninth houses, let's catch up and chat a little bit. I never told you guys about my trip to Japan. I actually went to Japan and Taiwan. In October and November, I went to Okinawa, Taipei, Taiwan, Osaka, Japan, and Tokyo. I'm like racking my brain because it's been like four months. Oh my god, I'm unwell. 
but it really was like the trip of a lifetime. So I definitely want to share at least a little bit about my experiences and thoughts on each of the places I visited. And I really hope I get to go back there someday soon because I loved every place I visited. And I feel like I just scratched the surface of a lot of these places. And so, yeah, I'm definitely hoping to return. The first stop on our trip was Okinawa, which is a Pacific island that is the territory of Japan with a lot of U.S. military bases. And the reason that we went there first was to visit my friend Zoe, who moved to Okinawa last April for work. And that was just an amazing place to start. It was so comfortable there. I felt, you know, so happy to see Zoe and just like was a reunion with one of my dearest friends. And it was just so wonderful to see her thriving in this new place that was like such a cool place to live such an amazing lifestyle it's a blue zone so it's one of those places in the world where people live to be like a hundred or more because the environment is really healthy and really conducive to living a chilled out healthy lifestyle and it's very much an island vibe which i feel like not all of japan is even though it is made up entirely of islands Okinawa is like a tropical island. It's like more similar to Hawaii than it is to other parts of Japan, at least to my view. Also, if I'm wrong about any of this stuff, sorry. It's, you know, I'm a tourist, not an expert. But my experience of Okinawa was very tropical island in the off season. It was October, so there weren't like a lot of plants vibrantly in bloom, but there was a lot of greenery and foliage and, you know, like plants in there fall winter state of being like we went to the okinawa botanical garden and it was still really lush even though things weren't blooming it was still very like lush and green and yeah tropical the botanical garden was kind of crazy too because they have a lot of animals it's like basically a petting zoo like you can feed capybara which was crazy i've never seen a capybara in real life they're actually really cute and friendly and goats and turtles big old tortoises really big and they were weirdly aggressive not to us but to each other i won't go into detail about what i saw in the turtle pen but it was x-rated for sure and if they were humans it would have been illegal they also had squirrel monkeys which were so tiny and crazy they had like yellow paws i think from pissing on their hands they're like tiny and they leap and basically fly. I love experiencing local flora and fauna if I can. While I'm on vacation, we went to the botanical garden in Taiwan as well and that was another highlight. I don't know, I'm really into my local botanical garden here in Brooklyn and also just like spending time outside wherever I am and getting into nature and kind of experiencing the ecological environmental surroundings of wherever I am. I feel like experiencing social stuff and like food and nightlife shopping and all of that is super fun but there's just something really special for me about like grounding down in the space that I'm in so I was grateful that we had some cool opportunities to do that throughout our trip. Also in Okinawa, Zoe took us to this amazing beach called Gushichan Beach on the southern coast of Okinawa. So we arrive at this beach through like this really short hiking trail. You emerge and you see these like huge impressive coral rocks where a few people were bouldering. It's supposed to be really good bouldering there. The people bouldering were like hanging upside down from the hollows of this coral formation so it definitely looked like they were having fun. And then there's like regular beach behind it too so it's like the sandy beach and then this igneous lava flow type surface that stretches into the ocean and then you can like walk behind that and behind the coral monuments along the sand and then you reach like more of like a traditional sandy beach and we swam at that beach which was really fun and my first time actually swimming in the pacific oh but i almost stepped on a venomous sea snake on that beach like two or three times i was actually starting to get really really nervous by the end of our time there because i like couldn't stop running into these things and like almost stepping on them I looked them up later when we had service and it says that they only bite if they're attacked or stepped on basically so I guess I barely escaped death. But yeah there's a lot of like venomous stuff in the waters off Okinawa. When Zoe first moved there she kept getting stung by jellyfish all the time but luckily nothing like that happened to us either time that we went swimming so feeling good about that and I would swim there again. 
But yeah, Okinawa was so much fun. Just like going to Zoe's favorite places and going to the beach and eating amazing, amazing food. She took us to like her local yakitori spot, which was like a one minute walk from her apartment and probably the most delicious food I had ever had in my life up until that point. And she took us to kind of a more traditional Okinawan izakaya where we had beach grapes and got to try a few more classic homestyle Okinawan dishes. And it was also, oh, my first time experiencing Japanese 7-Eleven. And if you don't already know, 7-Eleven in Japan is like a paradise. You can get delicious onigiri, tamago sandwich, katsu sandwich, coffee in a can that is so delicious, amazing snacks, little vitamin drinks, for whatever you're not feeling well about, if your liver needs support, if you need vitamin C, if you just want a little beauty shot, all of that is at 7-Eleven. Along with like comfort and convenience items that make sense and are what you need. It's like the most useful place. I miss it. And they have them everywhere. Everywhere in Japan, it's like you're never more than two minutes from a 7-Eleven or a Lawson's or both, where you can get just a perfect meal, perfect snack, zit stickers for your pimple, socks, underwear, a notebook, tape, any basic thing that you would need in order to be comfortable and live your most effective day is right there for you at 7-Eleven. And no, we're not sponsored, but I just wonder why 7-Eleven in the States is like so polar opposite from that. Like all you can get at 7-Eleven here is like beef jerky, taquito, and four loco. It's like I was going there for nourishment in Japan. Here, it's like just a store full of poison. Like, I should only go there if I'm trying to actively make myself sick. But I digress. I feel like if I lived in Japan, though, I would be eating 7-Eleven food, like, probably every single day. Absolutely love that store, 10 out of 10. But, okay, moving on. From Okinawa, we went with Zoe to Taiwan and visited Taipei and then took a little day trip from Taipei to Jufen, which is this gorgeous seaside mountain village that is said to have inspired Studio Ghibli movies, like particularly Spirited Away. And it just feels so magical there and it's so beautiful. We had Taiwanese tea in this beautiful tea house overlooking the sea and the mountainside. And we visited this gorgeous temple I mean, we visited so many shrines and temples throughout almost every location that we went to, but the temple in Jufen was unique in its beauty. It was so ornate and colorful and intricate and just like a total feast for the eyes. And the views from Jufen are just like absolutely stunning. We ate beef noodle soup there. That was to die for. And then we went back to Taipei and Taipei is such a fun city. It reminded me of New York a lot. I felt that the people were very kind and very accommodating to tourists and I should have realized but didn't that it's kind of like cool to speak English in Taiwan. So a lot of people can speak at least some English and are like happy to talk to you in English which was like really nice and made things a lot easier because we meet Eli and Zoe, the group that I was traveling with, speak very, very precious little Mandarin. So that was a big, big help. As far as Japan, Eli actually speaks some Japanese, which is incredible. He studied Japanese in high school and he, you know, brushed up on it for the trip and it saved us. It really got us by because it's not common to speak English in Japan. And anyway, back to Taiwan. Taiwan has also some of the best food I've ever eaten. Taiwan is famous for Xiaolongbao soup dumplings, so of course we got those. Also beef noodle soup. Also loved turnip cakes for breakfast. Oh, the fresh soy milk. Honestly, everything we tried was amazing. We also did a lot of walking through Taipei, which was awesome. That's one of my favorite ways to explore and get to know a new city. Like I said, we visited the botanical garden. We went to a few night markets. I tried stinky tofu. Not a fan. And I feel like we spent a lot of time just out on the street, kind of experiencing the street life, nightlife, because it was a very active city with a lot of cool young people and people of all ages hanging out in restaurants, on the street, walking around. We stayed in Ximending and there were really awesome street performers like doing kind of acrobatic circus style tricks in the street and like crowds congregating around them. 
And then that was like right next to the night market where people had stalls set up selling like clothes and it was all packed. Super active, super poppin' on the street and I totally love that. So definitely a highlight of the trip and definitely a place that I want to visit again and spend more time in on my next trip. From Taipei, we went to Osaka. For this part of the trip, it was just me and Eli. We flew to Osaka on Halloween, so we got there in the evening on Halloween and we went to Dotonbori Street, which is a food and nightlife district and one of the more like pop-in places in Osaka. And it was absolutely wall-to-wall packed with bodies, with people in Halloween costumes, just like hanging out, showing off their costume, catching the vibe, seeing everyone else's costume. We got there and I was like, Eli, we have to go back to the Airbnb. I need to get my no face mask. Oh, because I had gotten a no face mask for like $1.50 in Jufen. And I was wearing it earlier that weekend. I had like a black hoodie with me and black pants. So I was like, perfect, I'm no face, I've got the costume. I put it on when we were in Taipei and I was wearing it in the streets late at night and just like lightly messing with people just like for fun not in a scary way but just having fun with it and that was like a hilarious experience and I feel like people liked it like I got a lot of smiles we vlogged that so you may get a chance to see some of that experience in the future if I ever decide to follow through on my threat of becoming a vlogger but okay back to Osaka on Halloween I get my no face mask, I'm in costume, Eli's with me, we're like walking through the crowd. The two most common costumes we saw were girls dressed as SWAT teams. There was like multiple groups of girls all dressed in matching SWAT uniforms, hilarious. And a lot of groups of boys dressed as French maids. So make of that what you will. But I thought that was really interesting. Those were like far and away the most common costumes that we saw on Dotonbori Street in Osaka on Halloween. And I just love that they were celebrating Halloween. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> but I love the spirit of Halloween, and I was glad to see that in Japan, they feel the same. But the highlight for us of Osaka was definitely Spa World, which is a huge bathhouse that would not be out of place in Vegas, <laughs> that has many different themed rooms according to different countries across Asia and Europe. So they'll have like a Finland room, a Greece room. I was on the Europe floor and Eli was on the Asia floor because they're separated by gender. So we didn't get to experience the entire place, but it was just hilarious and awesome and super relaxing. Love the bath and sauna features. Eli and I went there two out of the three nights that we spent in Osaka. We couldn't get enough. And also, Osaka is famous for kushikatsu. Kushikatsu is deep-fried, skewered meat and vegetables. So it's like a little bite-sized piece of meat or vegetable, deep-fried. And like with an American mind, you think about that and you're like, that's disgusting. That's going to make me feel awful. But no, it's not like that. It's like delicious fresh high quality food with like the lightest little crisp we even had an egg fried kushikatsu style with ikora on top that was like one of the best things i've ever tried and so we ate that in the shinsekai neighborhood of osaka which is where it's originally from shinsekai at least part of it is actually coney island themed so we got a little taste of home there and at the end of the main drag there under the big hitachi tower that looks like a hitachi magic wand is spa world so we can easily stop by get some kushikatsu and then hit the spa heaven i think back on those memories and i'm just like what if i lived there what if that was my home and i could just go get kushikatsu and go to spa world anytime i wanted like what would that be like what would that do for my psyche I wonder. We also took a day trip to Nara from Osaka to see the deer and visit some local shrines and temples. It's a very quick day trip from Osaka. Nara is a city in Japan that has thousands of deer running wild throughout the town and particularly in Nara Park. And people sell little deer cookies that you can buy and feed to them. And it's healthy for them and really so much fun to go around and break off little pieces of cookie and feed it to cute sweet little deer. Some of them get pretty aggressive though so I spent a good amount of time actually running away from the deer and trying to find the smaller babies and females and just the deer that had nicer personalities where they weren't gonna push me around trying to get all my cookies. 
That was like a very blissful day. We were there at the same time as a lot of school children who must have been there on a field trip. There was like maybe thousands of them and it was really cool and fun to share the space with them and watch them play with the deer too. And a couple of them heard us speaking English and said hello and that was really sweet. That was just a heavenly place. It was a great introduction to mainland Japan. And from Osaka, we took a bullet train to Tokyo, our last stop on the trip. And Tokyo is a city I feel I could easily live in. I would love to spend months on end exploring that massive, vast, beautiful, exciting city. I loved it so much. We spent about five days in Tokyo and just had so much fun. We met up with some friends there. Zoe reunited with us. So we got to spend a couple of days with her in Tokyo. And we also met up with our friends from New York, Mathun and Nina as well as one of Eli's old friends from high school, Ken, who moved to Tokyo a few years ago and has been living there, and with his girlfriend, Marie, who is Japanese and grew up just outside of Tokyo. So that made it especially fun to see friends and meet new people and get some tips and recommendations from people who actually live in Tokyo. Ken was super generous, letting us in on all his favorite places. And it just made navigating a huge city like Tokyo feel really easy, which I'm grateful for. I could see it being really overwhelming, and thinking about it, I almost feel overwhelmed that there's so much I missed because it's such a huge city. But thinking about the places I did go and the experiences I had, I feel like it was just a really perfect trip and a perfect first introduction to the city. And I'm just looking forward to going back. Tokyo is packed with amazing restaurants, art museums, shops, nightlife, people everywhere. Actually, one of my favorite places I went in Tokyo is Meiji Jingu Shrine, which is a massive shrine to Emperor Meiji that sits in the middle of this 170-acre forest, right in the middle of Tokyo in Shibuya. So like you step through the Tori gates and enter into a literal forest that's so beautiful with this amazing shrine and this incredible tea house dedicated to Empress Shogun and all of these walking paths and just like stunning nature, so many different types of trees and plants and a creek. It was just incredibly cool. And they also had this really delicious restaurant right on the premises too. So we had lunch there and visited the shrine and walked through the forest. If you go into the forest through the Empress's garden, it's like you wouldn't even know that you're in Tokyo anymore. You're just really immersed in nature and there's traditional Japanese buildings like the Empress's Tea House and of course the big Shinto shrine complex and surrounding buildings and all of these offerings like so many traditional ceremonial sake barrels and wine barrels, chrysanthemums. It was a very interesting place and we spent like a whole morning there and part of the afternoon. I wasn't expecting it to be such a highlight but it was. We did karaoke, we went shopping in Harajuku, bought some cool clothes, went to some museums, and walked around a ton. Ate amazing food, katsu and ramen and sushi, and of course all our favorites from 7-Eleven. Absolutely loved it. And on our last night, we made it over to Team Lab Planets. I don't know if you've heard of that, but just like this immersive art space on the edge of Tokyo by team labs it was cool i had seen it a lot all over instagram so i was definitely curious about it and i had a lot of fun there it wasn't a highlight though and i wouldn't recommend it over other things that you could do in tokyo but if you're into immersive art experiences which i actually am then i would say it's definitely worth a stop if you're in town yeah so for nights we did the team labs karaoke oh we went to shinjuku I don't think I did that right. Next time I'm there, I need to go to Golden Guy. But we tried to go to Shinjuku for dinner and I personally got so overwhelmed. I couldn't even think straight. We ended up taking shelter in this like very Americanized Irish pub style bar. It was regrettable. We were trying to meet up with a big group of people and it was just way too crazy in Shinjuku. But yeah, I so regret any moment I wasted feeling overwhelmed because I just feel like there's so much that I want to do that I didn't get the opportunity to because we were only in Tokyo for like five days. So Tokyo is definitely top of my list of cities to return to as soon as possible. And then yeah, after Tokyo, we flew home. I was so sad. Eli and I had so much fun sightseeing 
and getting a taste of what Japanese life is like and an even smaller taste of what Taiwanese life is like. And I am forever changed. I love Asia. I want to correct the record if anyone <laughs> recalls um, maybe the stupidest thing I've ever said out loud on the podcast episode with Eli when I asked him if there was nature in Asia. That's like, it plays through my head. <laughs> I really think that's the dumbest thing I've ever said. And after visiting Tokyo and seeing the mega cities, like there's nature interspersed throughout. Everywhere we were in Japan, there were plenty of places to access nature and the mega city was not overwhelming at all. It, it felt more like sprawling civilization. Each place that we visited and each city we went to had a really different, unique vibe. So I can't um, comment across the board, but everywhere I went so far in Asia, I preferred to anywhere I've been in the US. <laughs> so I'm just ambiently trying to figure out how I can redirect my life to end up on that side of the planet. Because I've been in New York for you know, almost 15 years, and I'm always thinking about where to move, where to raise a family, and I get stuck because I just can't picture myself doing that anywhere in the United States except New York City. But at the same time, New York City is a really, really tough place to raise children. The school systems are tough, the lack of access to nature is tough, the city itself is like really rough, you know, and dirty. I mean, that's like the biggest difference between especially cities in Japan. They are just pristine. They are so clean. And coming back to New York, it made me more aware of how unusual it is and what it says about the city I live in that there is, you know, excrement smeared over so much of the city. I feel like I've been experiencing a little bit of like reverse culture shock. Like, showing up my first few days in Japan and really the whole time that we were over there. I just felt so comfortable. I was so happy to be there. All the ways that it was different from what I'm used to were exciting and I really loved it. And when it was time to come home, I really didn't want to leave. I felt like I could stay another two weeks at least. Um, and yeah, like Tokyo especially just felt like home or what I wished my home felt like. And then coming back to New York, I was just like, what is this? You know, after seeing how city life can be, I kind of stopped taking for granted that the way things are in New York is just an unavoidable part of urban living. I really like living in big cities. I grew up in the suburbs. I've never lived in a rural area, but the suburbs even, you know, I grew up in a very nice town with interesting educated people but it was boring and I always felt like I was just wasting time and waiting to be able to move to a big city and have access to all that it has to offer and when I ended up in New York for college when I was 18 I was just so excited and grateful to be there and I still feel that way I still feel grateful to live in New York and I think it's an amazing city with so so much to offer and it's very exciting to kind of feel like the world is at your fingertips every day. I was so focused on those parts of New York that I love and feel like are so unique and inspire so much gratitude in me that I tended to overlook and minimize the ways in which it's kind of lacking. But no, I mean, New York is a beautiful city, an amazing city, but it's hard to get through the day here. And that's just not how it is in Tokyo. It's quite nice over there and the food is amazing i've never eaten better or felt better after eating than when i was in japan i feel like 50 percent or more of the meals i eat here in the states kind of make me feel physically ill after or at least kind of wipe my energy and take a lot of energy to digest and process and in japan you know i was eating desserts, fried foods, you know, all kinds of like bad foods we would consider here. And everything was just so simple and clean and I never felt tired after eating. So it was interesting to have that experience of food just giving me energy instead of taking energy to process. 
So that's really got me thinking more about the American diet and what we're putting in our bodies here in the States and how problematic that can be on an individual personal level and also on a societal level. You know, nourishing food and a clean environment and intact cultural traditions. I feel like we're, well, I won't speak for the entire country, but here in New York, I feel like we're missing a lot of those things. And so it was very interesting to visit places and tour cities that are so different from my own, but have the similarity of being large cities where so much is happening and you have that feeling of the world being at your fingertips. Here, I know the world is at my fingertips, but rarely do I find myself having the energy to make the most of it. But hopefully that can change. And, you know, I'm working on altering my lifestyle, upgrading my habits, and getting myself to a place where I can show up fully and make the most of my fortunate circumstances being a New Yorker with an artistic vision and a perspective that I've spent a long time cultivating. I really want to use my voice to share ideas and to be creative and communicate with people in more ways than just a podcast. And I'm very grateful to have gone on this trip and expanded my horizons. And I feel very rejuvenated by everything that I experienced over there. And I just can't wait to take another trip and go back to Japan and around the world. Travel really does light me up because I am a ninth house sun and I also have my Venus in my ninth house of travel, which we'll discuss later in the episode. And so I find that a lot of the things that I identify with personally, a lot of the things that I love and am drawn and attracted to, and things that bring blessings and illumination into my experience of life are related to travel and expanding my horizons and learning about the world. So that's actually, I think, a good, easy application of this houses discussion that you can take and use on your own time is to look at your chart and try to find the house that your sun is in and the house that your Venus is in and think about those slices of life and what you can add into your own life to kind of unlock some of those benefits and put you in touch with what makes you light up and what can attract more of what you love and find beautiful into your own life and space. And I really think that leaning into those positive aspects of life and treating yourself can have a rippling positive effect on other things. I did have so much fun traveling though that it was hard to return to life when I got back. And especially with everything that we discussed in the last episode, and as I've mentioned to you guys, I do struggle with depression and I don't medicate it, which is not, you know anything to be proud of but it just is my reality that I'm nervous and unconvinced by SSRIs and standard depression treatments as far as medications are concerned. I haven't found a compelling narrative that inspires me to go after medication and seek that remedy for my own condition. And so sometimes when you have really low lows and really high highs, it can kind of like spark a period of uncontrolled major depression, which I think is what I've been unfortunately dealing with these past few months. My mental health has gotten a little bit out of my control, but we're still good. We're still working with it. We have awareness. I'm real with myself and I don't allow myself to stay too stagnant inside the feeling. I can't necessarily control whether or not I'm in a state of major depression. And I know that taking depression medication can kind of prevent a person from falling into that state. So then you don't have to do the whole process of clawing yourself back out of it. But I know how to claw, you know, I know how to climb and I feel like I have a good awareness and I can take a good temperature check on myself and not be afraid and just say, okay, I'm dealing with depression. What do I need to do? I need to clean up my diet. I need to make sure I'm leaving the house and exercising. I need to lean on tactics that I have for managing these symptoms and for maintaining creativity throughout these kinds of periods. I love collaging for that reason. It's very passive, but it's a powerful way to collect symbols and snippets of wisdom and inspiration 
and kind of put them together until a new idea gets sparked and that can be very illuminating and help to elevate my state of being. So I've been doing all those things and still hasn't really worked to fully bring me up out of the depth. That's okay. We're going to keep looking for new solutions. I've started listening to The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron audiobook, which I had never actually read the book. And I'm only like partway through, so I'm not going to give my whole commentary and recommendation. But I do think that it's a really amazing and powerful book that I am excited to share with you guys and talk about in a future episode. I went to film school for college and I have a BFA. And after that, I studied performance art with this really incredible, iconic artist named Kembra Fowler here in New York at this great art venue called Pioneer Works. And in my classes in college and in Kembra's class, the artist way was discussed at length numerous times. I've been assigned to do the morning pages a bunch of different times in my life and I've been taught lessons from the artist way secondhand and they have been really valuable so it's been kind of tangentially a part of my artistic practice for a really long time but I had never actually gone to the source material and followed the program of the artist's way as it's written so this is my first time doing that and I think it's really good I think it's helping it's like a proven method to draw creativity out of even the most blocked artist and I feel like depression kind of shows up or acts as a block of my creativity among other manifestations but that's maybe the worst one so that's my kind of form of outreach I guess in terms of like looking to an outside source for help because I do think that's important when you're struggling with something that's bigger than you it's like a little bit beyond what you can handle I think it is important to ask for help, but that's something that I really struggle with. It's not really like how I'm used to behaving or how I was raised. I'm a lot more comfortable just DIYing things and kind of handling things myself, but I recognize that that can sometimes take so much longer than the situation needs to and just like draw out and exacerbate negative experiences, negative periods in my life. And when I lose control of my mental health, sometimes that can be months and months or just like a really long time before I get that spark back. So yeah, I'm trying to change things up this time, look outside myself for help, try to find somebody wiser than me who has devised a program for dealing with the type of block that I'm dealing with. And I have high hopes for where this will take me. And of course, I'll share about the experience here in case anyone else relates and can benefit from this program or these ideas too. Grief always makes me so depressed, and I'm sure that's universal. I mean, it's just the worst feeling. But I think what I struggle with more than the average person is snapping out of that sadness when I fall into it. It can just last such a long time and really prevent me from being creative and being motivated to show up to life. Also the time of year, you know, the depths of winter is a tough one because you have the holidays and those are hard in their own way for a million different reasons. And then it's just dark and cold. It's been freezing cold here this week. And sometimes you just need a little something extra to get you back up. And for some people that's Prozac or Zoloft or whatever, but I'm gonna try using the artist way and working out and I will let you guys know how that works. And if you are a person who is on SSRIs or you're on medication for depression and you've had a great experience, please feel free to get in touch with me and tell me about it. You can reach out to me at k at metroastrology.com or call into the pod at 646-543-5017 and leave me a message or shoot me a text and it will be much appreciated. Okay, so let's talk houses. Wow, that was a long catch up, but it was way overdue. Anyway, it's time to dive in. Today we are discussing the third quadrant of the astrological chart wheel, 
the 7th, 8th, and 9th houses. Starting with the 7th house, which is a cardinal air house traditionally ruled by planet Venus and sign Libra. The 7th house rules relationships and partnerships, including business, platonic, and romantic partnerships. It tells us about the kind of partners we attract, the style in which we relate to others, and any gifts or challenges we may have in relating to others. So in addition to ruling your marriage partner, your business partner, and your best friend, this house also rules your friendships, rivals, and known adversaries, any enemies that you have. Any type of one-on-one relationship that you have with another person, good or bad, is ruled by this, the seventh house. This house rules marriage and contracts of all kinds, with Libra being the sign of laws and legal matters, its natural domain, the seventh house, is where we may find significators of lawsuits, contracts, negotiations, and all legally binding agreements. The seventh house also gives us information about our ideal long-term romantic partners, specifically the energy on the cusp of the seventh house, the descendant, is very important to consider when putting together the picture of our ideal astrological match. I will probably at some point do a whole episode on love and compatibility in astrology and how you can use the chart to analyze your own love prospects and figure out what type of person you're best compatible with and put language to that. But for today, I just want to highlight the seventh house and then Venus and Mars as the best places to look for immediate info on that topic if you're curious and looking at your chart and wondering where is my partner what are they like when are they coming you're going to want to look at mainly seventh house transits and where venus and mars are placed and what's in your seventh house and what is present on your descendant the seventh house cusp the descendant tells us about the energy that you are the most attracted to of any astrological energy and in turn that becomes the energy that you most attract and that's for several reasons first because that's what you're kind of subconsciously looking for what you gravitate towards so you may find it showing up more and more in your life more often than other astrological energies but that also happens to show you a side of yourself that you might be turned off to or might be denying in your overall image of your identity and who you are the descendant is also known as our shadow side it's the opposite point from the ascendant or the rising which is the energy that we meet the world with the lens through which we see the world and a very important part of our identity picture one that we often feel very familiar with and feel very positively toward because it defines our whole outlook on not only our chart but our whole experience of the world and the descendant being the opposite point 180 degrees away means that it's the farthest thing from that energy that we're familiar with that we identify with and that we call our own and the light which shines on the ascendant casts a shadow on the descendant and kind of obscures it from our picture of ourselves there can be exceptions to this sometimes people have their sun on their descendant which can shed light on that and obviously make the descendant less of a shadowy space But for many of us, the descendant is going to be an energy that we really don't identify with personally, but we feel a certain gravitational pull toward. And very often with our chosen romantic partners, we will find that they have some important personal placement that falls in our seventh house, maybe their sun or their Venus. It's not a hard and fast rule, but it's a trend that I notice and I'm never surprised by when I see that somebody's partner someone's long-term partner that they're committed to has their son in that person's seventh house or vice versa. I think it can just be like a really natural indicator that this person's identity is in line with what you're seeking for that part of your life. Having your north node in the seventh house will put a really intense emphasis on your one-on-one relationships and on fostering that ultimate partnership. For North Node in the seventh people, it is vital to focus on understanding one-on-one relationships and learning to master the art of cooperation and partnership. For this lifetime, it means pushing beyond your comfort zone of independence and autonomy and learning how to effectively partner with another person for the advancement of both of your spiritual growth. Compromise is a big keyword for North Node in the seventh people. Learning to put aside your own desires and needs and prioritize the needs of your partnership 
is going to be a challenging but extremely rewarding lesson for you to work on learning. And you might find that that's really especially challenging for you and goes against what you naturally, instinctively lean toward. But that's sort of the nature of what the North Node represents in our charts. It's a destination point that's 180 degrees from where we karmically start at the South Node. So if you're a North Node in the 7th house person, you might find relationships and partnerships to be challenging. And you may be a lot more comfortable doing things on your own, being your own independent person. But that challenge is exactly the work that you're meant to focus on. And there is significant reward for you in going on that journey and finding ways to build yourself up in tandem with another person and focus on not only your growth, but theirs as well. And the seventh house leads naturally to the eighth house of intimacy, sex, death, merging, transformation, joint resources, and other people's money. The Llewellyn book, which I'm using as kind of a reference just to make sure I don't miss anything when I'm telling you guys about these houses, lists the eighth house as being the house of joint resources and other people's money, emphasizing that it represents your partner's income and earning potential and the combined assets that you share together, as well as what we call other people's money, which can be taxes, inheritance, insurance, loans, mortgages, and things like child support. And that's all Llewellyn's book says about the 8th house, but I've learned and experienced the 8th house to be much more than that. When I was considering what keyword best defines the 8th house, I was really torn between merging, transformation, and intimacy, and thinking about all of the topics that the 8th house rules and encompasses, and how they're all kind of tied together under the umbrella of intimacy, merging, and transformation, just like immediately sent me on a thought spiral of how intimate relationships transform us, and merging our resources, our being, our identities, with another being, set of resources, identity, what have you, is a transformative experience and how many of those transformative experiences we have and we engage with over the course of our lives and how the people that we know and our deepening of our relationship to them and our creation of intimacy with those people sparks our transformation at different times in different ways and thinking about resources and how in the eighth house resources that belong to another transform to become resources that belong to you in some way or your resources transform to become someone else's there's a lot of depth and nuance in the way these keywords and these concepts relate and interweave with one another and i feel like that depth and that mystery and being able to follow those webs and untangle these kinds of deep relationships and interwoven meanings and sparks of transformation and alchemy that's like why we need occult studies and you know the complicated nature of all of that is where mystery is born from i also think of the eighth house as being the house of occult studies and hidden information things like the birth chart like tarot any kind of logic or lexicon or set of symbols that allows us to engage with the immaterial mysterious parts of this world allows us to explore the mystery dive below the surface start untangling threads and understanding the transformation that has been and continues to take place inside of us in all these different ways. Being naturally ruled by Scorpio and Pluto, there's a serious depth to this house, and it's here where we can plumb deep beneath the surface of things, past the superficial, and discover the deeper meanings behind things that can be truly transformative to ourselves and our life experience. The eighth house is a fixed water house, so there is an emotional significance and emphasis on the depth of emotion here, and it's a place where we can not only experience our emotions deeply, but deeply feel the emotions of others and allow them to change us in some way. If you have your north node in the eighth house, your big lesson in this lifetime is to learn that you don't have to do it all on your own. And that teaming up and collaborating with a trusted partner can bring all kinds of expansion and growth and blessings into your life. In order to connect with your destiny, you will need to learn how to foster true intimacy 
and transform in a way that allows you to share the deepest parts of yourself with another person with complete trust in a way that allows you to operate as something greater than just yourself but as part of a team grounded in trust intimacy and the secret hidden knowledge that you uncover in your deep emotional exploration of yourself and the wider world so north node in the eighth house it's a tall order you're meant to uncover the mystery of life you're meant to form intimate bonds explore the depths of your psyche transform over and over again and merge with those other beings that you met and bonded with and formed real trust with your challenge is to make yourself vulnerable enough in the right context that you can develop real intimacy and allow yourself to be transformed by that that you can merge mind body spirit and material resources with another person to create something bigger than what you had before you are not somebody who will be satisfied with simple superficial relationships and success you are somebody who will be on a quest to explore the deep hidden parts of life and in that exploration you will likely find a deep transformational intimacy between yourself and life itself this will transform you in ways i can't imagine or describe but that is the ultimate work of your lifetime and something that you're destined to experience and create for yourself the eighth house leads into the ninth house which is all about expansion so we can think of the themes and activities that we deal with in the eighth house as transforming us to be ready for our big expansion in the ninth house and the ninth house is a cadent firehouse naturally ruled by sagittarius and jupiter it rules our spiritual code of ethics our beliefs and morals higher learning exploration travel adventure anything that expands our horizons that edifies us this all happens in the ninth house jupiter is the traditional ruler of the ninth house and jupiter is the planet of growth expansion blessings and good fortune and its rulership over the ninth house brings a really buoyant and uplifting energy to this area of the chart if you have important placements like your sun moon or personal planets in this house it can be really beneficial to you to embrace being a lifelong learner and a seeker of new experiences and knowledge travel can be especially great for you and bring all kinds of rewards into your life and have the potential to light up your chart this is also the house of publishing so if you're a ninth house person you might consider ways that you can distill all of your studying and learning into a bank of knowledge that you can publish and put out into the world to share with other people and allow other people to benefit from your explorations and journeys and if you have your north node in the ninth house it indicates that you are meant to look beyond your immediate neighborhood family friends and surroundings and travel far and wide to sort of find your destiny through exploring the wider world and opening up new avenues to connect and communicate with people far away any opportunity that allows you to travel abroad and study or sightsee or research or in any way learn from people around the world that's going to create a spark in the direction of your destiny that you can then follow and hopefully close the loop by creating something based on what you learn and what those experiences bring to your life and publish them for the benefit of all here now and all to come with north node in the ninth house you may be tempted to stay within your community and foster those kinds of connections with your friends and siblings and family and people who you've known your whole life but there is a much wider world out there and your destiny is somewhere to be found in that wider world so any opportunities that you can take to travel abroad to study foreign languages concepts or simply learn in any way from people who live in places far away from where you come from this is going to help unlock your ability to move in the direction of your destiny your task is to explore and seek knowledge and develop your own personal moral ethical code that's based on your experience of life and your ever widening knowledge of what this world is and what it has to offer the ninth house being a firehouse is also a house of expression 
the ninth house rules publishing so often it rules forms of expression that fall into that category any kind of publishing traditional or self but ninth house people have a lot of ideas that they're working with and it's good to share those and let your ideas pollinate other people's minds and have your mind be pollinated by other people's ideas and to kind of search as far and as wide as possible so you can open yourself up to the potential of different schools of thought and ways of thinking that could really expand your mind and soul. As a ninth house sun and Venus, I feel good about continuing to publish my thoughts and ideas, and I want to do that more and find new avenues to express myself through published works. Like, if you know me in real life, you might think, why do you have a podcast? That doesn't seem entirely up your alley and it's because i have sun and venus in the ninth house and why an astrology podcast because i have mercury and mars in the eighth house and moon in the 12th and pluto in the fourth in a grand trine like that's why it all makes sense when you look at the chart and it bolsters me you know because even though it feels uncomfortable and sometimes i think who am i talking to who is out there listening to this i feel bolstered and encouraged by the evidence in my chart that publishing my ideas, expressing myself in a way that can be publicized and shared worldwide, and having the content of that act be something esoteric and occult that has to do with deep thinking and astrology and my personal experiences and emotions. I feel like whether or not this podcast is a success by any kind of like classical metric, it's worth pursuing because whether or not it's the end goal for me, it's in line with the type of energy that I'm meant to be working with. And so for me, publishing a chaotic podcast that no one asked for is better than being quiet and not publishing anything at all because it's honoring the energies in my birth chart. And more specifically, it's working with the positive, more benefic energies that i have at my disposal according to my birth chart venus is a benefic it brings good things blessings relationships affection beautiful experiences into one's life so by honoring my identity as represented by my sun and tapping into my blessings as represented by my venus leaning into ninth house efforts like travel and spirituality and publishing leaning into those things brings positive energy into my life that helps me align with my fate and collaborate with the energy i've been destined to carry to meet my future with confidence i really love astrology and i have a hard time communicating that to people when i'm talking to them in person but i feel like when i'm podcasting and i have the luxury of recording as much as i want and editing i can get closer to expressing what i gain from this discipline in the hopes that someone else can discover it and gain something from it as well. And even though I technically sell astrology readings, it's really not a large part of my income. And I'm not actually trying to sell you guys readings or even sell you on astrology, but more trying to publish my thoughts, my perspective on life and spirit and start conversations that can hopefully transform me and expand me and move me forward in the direction of my destiny. That's all I can really hope for, and I think all any of us can really hope for. That's the goal. And I am an awful perfectionist, and I'm never happy with my descriptions of the houses. I feel like they really are so nuanced and complex and best discussed in the context of real charts with real placements and real circumstances, real human experiences tied alongside. So I almost hate talking about them in a general sense, but it's an important part of learning to work with your own chart. And hopefully you guys can get some kind of sense and impression for what the energy of each house is like and what kind of themes fall under that umbrella and maybe hopefully why those themes are lumped together under one umbrella and what kind of universal thread there is tying them all together. Next week, we'll complete the Houses series with Houses 10, 11, and 12. I'm excited to finish this up and move on to new conversations and start making episodes that are even more unstructured. I love for the podcast to just flow like water. I have Mercury in Pisces, and I'm really just trying to express myself like an ocean current and invite 
my listeners to get swept up for a little while and hopefully where I take you is somewhere a little further out from where you started where you can get a new perspective that expands your thinking and your horizons and shows you something new about yourself or about this wild and mysterious thing we're all doing called life. Do you guys ever think about how crazy it is that we're all alive at the same time and that that time is right now? What are the odds? So I hope you guys are well. Thank you for listening. This was a big episode with a lot of twists and turns. Looking forward to talking to you again soon. I'm sending you love and warmth for the remainder of the winter, and I'll talk to you soon. 